Our scripture this morning comes from the book of First Chronicles, chapter 13. David conferred with each of his officers the commanders of thousands and commanders of, a, of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it's the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands, to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Shehor River in Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath Jerim. David and all Israel went to Bala of Judah, Kiriath Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart, with Uzzah and Ohio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the fleshing, threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen had stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house, to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, Brian, for reading it. And uh, hey again, everybody. Uh, I want to also, before I get into the message, tell you that next Sunday, um, starting a new six-week series, and uh, each week our groups are going to be watching these wonderful five-minute videos produced by the Bible Project. Uh, and they, these videos will dovetail perfectly with the series. And uh, the videos and the messages are based on Exodus 34, verse 6, where it says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. These words get repeated over and over in the Old Testament. They point us to the character of God. And we're going to look at these aspects of God's character in our series called Good Morning, This is God. And our aim at Faith Westwood is to help you experience the rewarding life of a disciple of Jesus. And one of the best ways uh, you can begin that is by getting into what we call a faith group. A, a faith group might be as small as four or five. It might be as big as 14 or 15. But, but this is where we learn to make our faith practical and where we develop some really meaningful relationships, friendships, and where we learn to walk with Jesus. 
Right now, we have 22 faith groups for adults, and they're meeting at all different days of the week, different times, and most of them discuss what we talk about here on Sunday, the scripture and the message. So if you are not in a group, I want to personally invite you to give it a try, even if it's just for the six weeks, okay? Uh, and, and so if you want to say, I'm, I, you want to find out more about it, then look on your connection card, and on the back, there's a place you can check to get more information about faith groups. And our staff member, Jen Robinson, will be in touch with you, okay? And, uh, of course, all of you who are here in worship in person, you can also go. Today we have a faith groups table set up in the east entryway, okay, right by those east doors. And you can talk to somebody there, and you can ask about what kind of group options there are, right? Now let's pray. Lord God, we, we bow before you now, and we stop to recognize that you are here. Take us by the hand, Lord, and walk with us. So often we stumble and fall, and we need you to pick us up. Teach us your will so that we may walk in the way of life. And now let's, let's pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, this is the last Sunday of our series, and all during these six weeks I've been saying what? Don't read the Bible. And now you know what I found out? Some of you have actually started reading the Bible. That just shows you how much influence I have, right? I remember when I was a kid, a door-to-door -door Bible salesman uh, came, stopped by our house. I mean, this is actually when they did this, you know. And, and they spent a long, he spent a long time with my parents, and they ordered this big, white, family Bible uh, with, with lots of extra pages to record your, your, your important family events, you know, weddings and births and funerals and, and so on. But, but this is not the Bible that you will kind of, you know, take out and read. I mean, partly because it's so huge. But it's more of a, a coffee table Bible, right? It's more of a, of a Bible to be looked at. Now, for a lot of Christians today, our attachment to the Bible is, is kind of like that. It's, it's more sentimental than substantial. But I'm telling you, if we want to experience the rewarding life of a disciple of Jesus, then we need to embrace the Bible in a substantial way. Now, on the altar, uh, you've got the altar Bible, and throughout this series, I put up some of my own uh, Bibles, and I wanted to tell you about one of them today. This one's kind of the covers all torn up, um, but this is a Bible that my grandparents gave me 
for my 10th birthday. And um, uh, it's, it's a red letter edition, you know, where the words of Jesus are all in red. And uh, it's uh, got my name engraved in gold letters on the front. Now, when I was in college, I lost this Bible. And then one day, nearly 20 years later, I received a package in the mail. My prodigal Bible had returned. <laughs> a Methodist pastor had found this in his church, saw my name on the cover, and sent it to me. Now, my guess is how that happened is that, you know, when, when I was in college, I was singing in a gospel quartet, and we probably had sung at this church, and I must have left it there and didn't realize it. Anyway, today's message is this. Uh, don't read the Bible unless you're ready to wrestle with hard questions. And the scripture that uh, Brian just read for us is, is, a, is a passage I have never preached on before. I have successfully avoided it all these years. But I'm using it today because when you read the Bible and you come across these hard passages like this, you, you may find it deeply disturbing. And I don't want you to give up on God because of those hard passages in the Bible. So grab a Bible. If you didn't bring one, there's a pew Bible in front of you. Uh, and open it to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. Pew Bible's on page 411. It's about how King David brings in a guy from Indiana to find the Ark of the Covenant before the Nazis do. Oh, no, wrong story. Sorry, mother. Come on now. That was just a groan. <laughs> no, he invites all the people of Israel to the town of Kiriath-Jerim where the Ark of the Covenant has been kept. David wants to bring it to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was, was made a few centuries earlier during the days of Moses, and it contains the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments and a couple other things. So at, at Kiriath-Jerim, they put the Ark on a wooden cart and head to Jerusalem seven and a half miles away with a throng of people following. Let's start with verse 7. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart with Uzzah and Ohio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God with songs and with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, and trumpets. I mean, they had the whole band. All these people, I can just see, and they are dancing and singing Mad, they're, they're timbrels, they're tambourines, and before they arrive in Jerusalem, though, the worship time is cut short. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. And I want to say, Lord, all I did was steady the ark so it wouldn't fall, and you strike him down? How could you be so mean? But remember what we've been learning in this series, and if you haven't been here, um, I'll give it to you today. C-I-E stands for context is everything. If you want to understand the Bible, 
Context is everything. We have to try to understand it the way the original readers understood it. And we have to understand it in the context of the rest of the Bible story. And if we go to the, back to the book of Exodus when the Ark of the Covenant was built, we find that it had rings on the four corners. And poles were made that would slide into the rings, and then four people could carry the Ark without touching it by putting the ends of the poles on their shoulders. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was considered so holy that to touch it would be almost like touching God. They were to never be casual about the Ark. I mean, if you let people start touching it, I mean, the next thing you know, they're going to be using it as a dinner table and putting their leftovers inside. It must be kept holy, as God is holy. Well, this day, they brought the Ark of the Covenant, uh, covenant from Kiriam, uh, Kiriath-Jerim, and they did not get four priestly, uh, pre men from the priestly tribe of, of Levi to carry it with poles like they were supposed to. Instead, they loaded it up on a cart, and when they hit a bump, one of the men guiding the cart reached out his hand to steady the ark like it was a load of hay. I imagine Uzzah meant well, but he did what God had commanded must never be done. And if we get angry at God for doing this, for striking down Uzzah, well, at least we're in good company because that's what David did. Let's look at verse 11. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. And you'll see in the footnotes, footnotes it means outbreak against Uzzah. It's not surprising that at that point, David's going, I don't think I even want to bring this thing into my city. You know, this is the thing, I mean, it is too risky, too dangerous. Although a couple of chapters later, he does do it, but this time he does it the right way. He recruits people from the tribe of Levi to carry it on poles, and they bring it into Jerusalem. Now, one of the filters that I use as I try to understand th these kinds of passages is to ask, what would Jesus do and what would Jesus say? And it's not enough for me to just imagine what I want Jesus to do or say. I need evidence from what he he did and what he said. First, I note that Jesus never struck anybody dead, right? He raised a few people from the dead, but he never killed anybody. And, and so that lets me know something about the heart of God. Jesus said that he came to bring life, not death. On the other hand, one time Jesus uh, was asked about some people who died tragically. And, and, and of course, the typical Jewish uh, reasoning was, well, it must be God's judgment for some horrible sin they committed. But Jesus said, no. They were no worse sinners than any of you. And then he adds this, but unless you repent, you too will perish. So Jesus is saying, Sin is always a big deal. It's always a life and death matter. And, and I have to remember that. 
And, of course, even in the New Testament, God struck a few people dead. Uh, like the Christian couple Ananias and Sapphira who, who lied to make themselves look extremely generous when they really weren't, as if, you know, God wouldn't notice. And their, their deaths stand as a warning for us even today. Here's another passage in the Old Testament that ew, makes me cringe. God tells the Israelites to annihilate a group of people, men, women, children, and even the animals. First Samuel 15, the prophet says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack, let's go to the next slide. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camel and donkeys. That is hard to hear. It makes God sound more like Putin than Jesus. We have to remember CIE, context is everything. So let's look at some context. A few centuries earlier, God set the Israelites free from their slavery in Egypt and on their way to Mount Sinai, who was it that attacked them? The Amalekites. So now God orders them to annihilate the Amalekites as punishment for what their ancestors did. And I wonder, well, why would God punish them for something their ancestors did? Well, I assume... It's because they were unrepentant and continuing to do that kind of thing. Still, I, I have to say, to me, this one is even harder than Uzzah and the ark. You know, here God is telling the Israelites to carry out his punishment by wiping out the Amalekites. Well, here's another piece of context. When you read about the battles in the Old Testament, there's, there's a certain amount of war rhetoric going on that the original readers would have recognized. Sometimes it'll tell you that uh, the Israelites killed every last one of a certain enemy, and then in the next chapter it'll tell about those same people and what they're doing. So, obviously, they were not all killed. It's some of that, there's some war rhetoric going on that people kind of understood. Now, we use similar kinds of rhetoric today. I mean, we might say that one team slaughtered another. Ouch. But that slaughtered team, they'll be there the next week to play another game. You, you might find it helpful to know also that these commands to attack came during very limited times in Israel's history. And when Israel persistently disobeyed God and worshipped idols and took advantage of the poor, God sent other nations to attack them. So it went both ways. It's also good to remember that in the Old Testament, God's people are a nation, right? But in the New Testament, the new people of God who follow Jesus are not a nation. We are people from every nation, and Jesus taught us to love our enemies, pray for our persecutors, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. 
And we must not, repeat, we must not oversimplify the Bible and say, well, the Old Testament is all about judgment and violence, and the New Testament is all about love. The way I look at it, the whole Bible is about love. And even God's judgment is ultimately an expression of his mission of love. Now, those bloodthirsty passages in the Old Testament, they still bother me. Do they bother you? They bother me. One thing that helps is something that I learned from Ben Witherington, who's a Bible uh, professor at Asbury Seminary. It's the hard heart principle. And it comes from the passage in the Gospels uh, uh, when Jesus was asked about divorce. Now, in the first century, Jews were divided about how to understand Moses' command on divorce. Some believed that a man was permitted to divorce his wife for any reason. She burned the bread. Get rid of her. And others believed that a man could divorce his wife for the, only the most serious offenses. Now, when Jesus was asked about it, here's what he said. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. That means it's, divorce wasn't God's original design for us. And then he goes on to say that divorce is, is even though it's not what God wants, but, he, but he, even though in some cases it can be regrettably permitted. And why did God tell Moses to allow divorce, he says, because your hearts were hard. You see, God knows that some of these men are going to divorce their wives. If a man leaves his wife or, or kicks her out, but if he does not issue, if he does not give her a certificate of divorce, then she cannot remarry, and then she will probably end up destitute. But if he is required to give her a certificate of divorce, then she can remarry. So, so divorce was important to allow, even though it's regrettable. You understand? Now, can we apply that same hard heart principle to other things in the Old Testament? I, I, I think we can. Uh, when it comes to the command, for example, to wipe out other nations, we remember that these were bloody times. Hand-to-hand -hand combat and warfare were just uh, an ongoing part of life in these tribal times. And you know, God met these violent people where they were, even with their hardened hearts. They, they weren't ready to hear about loving their enemies. <laughs> so God worked with them and, and taught them to trust him. And, and then centuries later, when the time was right, God sent his son. As the Bible says, he is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus never told his followers to attack anybody, never to attack another nation. Instead, he told them to go to every nation and bring them good news. Tell everybody about it. Announce that the final stage of God's plan has at last begun. 
announced that God wants to forgive everybody of their sins and to give them new life and invite them to come and believe and walk with Jesus. And that is my message to you, my friend. God loves you. God has always loved you. Did you know that? God is eager to forgive you and give you a rewarding life as you walk with Christ. Jesus loves you so much, the Father loves you so much, that Jesus laid down his life to set you free from sin and guilt, and he rose from the dead, and he wants to raise you to a new life. But of course, the choice is yours, isn't it? I think that's probably one of the biggest gifts that God ever gave us, was the gift to choose for ourselves. And we know that we have made a lot of wrong choices. But God has not given up on us. So, what will you do? Will you choose him now? Will you choose to receive this great gift? Will you choose to receive the life that Jesus came to bring you? What will you choose? Let's pray. Good and kind Father, there are parts of the Bible that we have such a hard time with. But we also know that it's, it's here in this book that we find you. And Jesus, it is here in this book that we find you. This is where we find the words of life. And so today, Lord, we choose you. Today, we choose life. And all God's people said, amen.